Well, last week we visited my parents in Florida, and they rented some bikes for the kids to use for the week, and we parked those bikes in the garage right next to my dad's shiny white Buick. I asked the kids, because they were used to riding these new bikes, I asked them to walk their bikes into the garage rather than ride them into the garage. I got Ava's permission to tell you what happened next. I came into the garage one day and eight-year-old Ava said, Dad, I didn't listen. I rode my bike into Grandpa's car and scratched it. Now I challenged her for disobeying the rule that I had clearly given her and then I encouraged her for her courage to be honest. Now I could see how sorry Ava was. She knew exactly what she had done. She knew it was wrong. And she wondered if we needed to tell Grandpa. And then she wondered if grandpa would be angry and how angry grandpa would be. Now she felt the unsettling fear that all of us feel when there's a relational separation. She had done something wrong to grandpa and she knew that there was some distance between her and him. And she feared the process, the awful process of making the wrong right. Now, this is how Israel feels this morning at the bottom of Mount Sinai. The mountain fills with smoke. The air fills with crashes of thunder and with trumpet blasts that feel like an unrelenting artillery barrage. And the sky fills with lightning. And all this power and all this magnitude and all this might points to the God who's delivering his word. And when God finishes speaking these initial 10 words, these initial 10 commandments, fear fills the hearts of the Israelites. They know that they can't measure up to God's law. They feel the unsettling fear of relational separation. Okay, so then why did I entitle this message, The Goodness of God's Law? What's good about God's law if it drives God's people away from him? Well, because God's law leads us to grace, which is what I hope we'll see this morning. God's law highlights our separation and then invites us to faith, not in ourselves, not in our own work, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of one who came in our place. Therefore, King David could say in the Psalms that he loves the law, that the law delights his heart, that he's willing to meditate on it day and night, that it's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. That's what David thinks about God's law. Here's the main idea this morning. Confidently draw near to the redeeming God through the sacrifice of Christ. Confidently draw near to God through the sacrifice of Christ. Brother or sister, you may come this morning feeling really discouraged over your own sin, really ashamed over your own battle with a particular area of sin. Or you may come this morning stubbornly holding on to an area of sin, knowingly keeping that from the Lord's leadership in your life. So whether discouraged or rebellious, I pray that you would confidently draw near to God in Christ this morning that you would turn from your sin, no matter how impossible that may seem, and turn to Christ. Or you may not think of yourself as a Christian at all, and we're glad you're here and we prayed that you would come. 
And you may be resenting the fact that God, if he exists at all, has moral expectations of you. Or maybe you're feeling some vague sense that things are not actually as they should be. You feel deep down in your soul like there is a creator and you haven't been living to please him but yourself. And so whichever of those two camps you may fall into this morning, I'm praying that you would confidently draw near to the redeeming God who longs to rescue you and longs to make you his own through the work of his son. So we'll take this in two parts this morning. The first part, the, redeeming, the Redeemer's glorious law highlights our separation. The Redeemer's glorious law highlights our separation. Look where God begins in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2. Now, he's rescued them. They barely know this God. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's guided them through the wilderness. They know he's a promise keeper, but what does he want from them? We get these 10 initial words from God at Mount Sinai. And he begins here. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. God begins by defining the relationship. I'm the redeemer who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt and you are the ones who have been redeemed and purchased and rescued from slavery and bought, brought here. So as God de- prepares to deliver these 10 words to his people, they are not standing enslaved in Egypt. They are standing free at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And then God says, these words, these glorious words. And we're going to take them really quickly this morning. This is a a high altitude flyover of the Ten Commandments. I'd encourage you, if you want to dig deeper, go back to our sermon series in the summer of 2014. If you can remember that far back, it's on our website. We preached a sermon on each of these commandments. But today, I just want us to feel the Ten Commandments in the context of God redeeming his people from Egypt. So the first three commands have to do with how they relate to God. Verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me And keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The first command is don't worship other gods before me. Now, Egypt has been redeemed from slavery, and the Egyptians worship many gods. And the whole point of the ten plagues was to show the Egyptians and the Israelites that the so-called gods of Egypt could not stand against the gale-force winds of God's power. And so God would redeem his people over and against the so-called gods of Egypt. Whether they were fake or whether they were weak demonic forces, it doesn't matter. God exercised authority over them. And to be redeemed and then to go worship other gods is not only ungrateful, it's foolish. Secondly, don't worship images of me. Don't fashion images of me out of stone and don't etch them in clay because you'll end up worshiping them instead of me. And the creature doesn't create the creator. The creature worships the creator as the creator wants to be worshiped. 
and the images that we make of God fall embarrassingly and profanely short of who God is in all his glory. So don't fashion God as you desire him. His revelation about who he is drives our worship of him. Fashioning a God in our own image or an image of God zooms in on one particular aspect or attribute or character quality of God and distorts all the rest. God wants us to worship him as he's revealed himself in his word. I saw a pastor from Richmond recently tweet about an imaginary conversation that he imagined with a congregation member who leaves the worship service and says to their pastor, I didn't really like the worship today. To which the pastor responds, well, that's okay because we weren't worshiping you anyway. (laughs) God dictates how we worship him. And the most foundational question we ask in worship is, what pleases God? Third, don't take my name in vain. Name reveals character. You can call on me when you pray. You can cry to me when you sing, but don't flippantly or casually use my name. Because we belong to God and our lives are oriented around God, he deserves that kind of reverence and respect. It's God who redeems and judges. It's God who sits enthroned in the heavens and deserves the praise of all peoples. And so don't demean or domesticate God by speaking of him unthinkingly. Now, These first three commands that God gives Israel to help them understand how to relate to him require us to honor him as he desires. He defines the terms of the relationship. We respond to his creation. And so maybe you think something like this. I don't believe in a God who would send good people to hell. And I'm a good person. Or maybe you think, I'll just keep the religious plate spinning, but what I'm really after in this life is the success and respect and comfort that comes with the American dream. And we're constantly remaking God in our own image or finding our life and significance outside of God. And these three commandments fly in the face of that tendency. And if you want to evaluate where you might be putting other things before God, I would encourage you to grab a close friend and to talk with them honestly about where you spend your money on a given month and where you spend your time and how you spend your conversations, what you talk about. Those three things will be indicators of what you're worshiping and what you're serving and what you're longing to accomplish. So don't you see yourself in this? The Israelites are going to stand off from God as he finishes these Ten Commandments. And we can see ourselves in light of his glorious law and feel the separation between us and God because we're constantly falling in these areas, constantly misstepping. And God's glorious law shines a spotlight on our need. Commandments 4 through 10 have to do with our relationship with the world that God's created and other people. So look at Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it shall you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number four is set apart the Sabbath day. Keep it holy to the Lord. God calls his people to work hard and to rest deeply. Labor for six days, knowing that work is a blessing. And work hard, work up a sweat, create things. Overcome things, instill order out of chaos. And work is not just the things you're paid for. Mow the lawn and fix the leaky toilet and do the dishes. Work hard for six days. Labor tirelessly. But one day out of seven has been designed by God to be set apart as holy to the Lord. And so God says to Israel, don't work. You or your children or your servants or your livestock or a guest who's staying in your home. Just rest. Set aside the good, if challenging, work that God has graciously given you and rest. Now notice that God roots this command to rest, this command for Sabbath, in creation. God, who has no need for rest, creates for six days and then rests. And in so doing, God shows us the pattern that's good for our souls. Sabbath rest serves us. It serves us by reminding us that we are creatures, that we serve a creator who is limitless and endless in power, but that is not us. We're creatures, we're limited, and Sabbath is a gift to us. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees, forget the rules. Sabbath is a gift for man. Man was made not for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath is a gift to you. It gives you the rest and the reorientation that you need. And some of you have been rolling through life, breaking through the boundaries of days and weeks. And you need to hear this morning that God gave you Sabbath as a gift to open and to treasure. Most of us will pursue Sabbath on Sunday, what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. And so I'd encourage you to work ahead so that you can rest on the Lord's day, that you can pursue worshipful rest, not mindless leisure, but purposeful, worshipful rest. Say no to everything that you can so that you can be present for this weekly gathering of God's people, a gathering that we lost for 12 full weeks at the beginning of COVID, and pursue instead worshipful rest from your labor and joyful fellowship with fellow Christians and people that you love. Not because you have to, but because you get to, because God has given us this gift. He's given us permission to lay it down and to worship and rest and fellowship. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Look at verse 12. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's some kind of blessing or reward when we honor the parents that God has given us. To honor someone is to treat them with the weight or heaviness that they deserve. Parents deserve honor for every honorable thing that they do. And so we need to value them for who they are and appreciate them for what they've done and continue to do. So if you're a child here this morning, respect the authority of your parents. Obey their instructions gladly. Make their parenting of you a joy. 
And there is a reward for you in this. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there's some kind of blessing for children who obey their parents. And if you're an adult, spend time with your parents. Care for them as they age. Seek their counsel. Value them for who they are. Fold them and include them into your life as a family. Number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. Don't take the life of another unless you're defending yourself or another person. But really, it's more than just don't take a life wrongfully. God has determined the sacredness of human life by making human beings in his image. And so from conception to grave, human beings matter uniquely and distinctly in God's creation. And God's people lead the way. Commandment number seven, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Be faithful to the sanctity of marriage between a husband and a wife. The marriage bed between a husband and a wife must be pure, not even leaving room for pornography or lust. And as our culture crumbles on this issue, the church can hold up the precious, sexually fulfilling gift of a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife for their entire lives. Number eight, verse 15, you shall not steal. But again, it's more than just not stealing. There's also a positive to this, which Paul reveals in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see how it moves from simply not being a thief to being a hard worker who's generous to those in need? And then number nine, verse 16, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie about your neighbor. Tell the truth consistently every time. Don't put your neighbor in a tough spot. Be honest. Contend for the truth. And then number 10, verse 17, don't covet anything of your neighbors, not his house, not his wife, not his servants, not his children, not his animals, nothing. You do that by gratefully acknowledging that God gives good gifts to his children, that God knows how to give good gifts And then he's given us what we need, even if it's not the same as he's given to someone else. And so there's a call for God's people to wrestle for contentment with what he's given us. Now, those are the 10 words. Those are the first 10 words that God speaks to his people. He's just getting started, but these are the first 10. Now look in verse 18 at how God's people respond to these first 10 words. Now when when all the people saw the thunder... And the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin." The people stood far off. And let's pause there for a moment. The people stand far off. Such is the glory of God's law. It's like trying to look into the sun. You may look for a moment, but your eyes just can't take it. It's that glorious. It's that overpowering. You can't look at it. Or trying to keep your hand close to a campfire. You can't do it for long. You've got to pull your hand away. It's too hot. It's too bright. It's too beautiful. 
When we come into close contact with a holy God, we're convinced that we should die. We know that we've fallen short of God's glory. That is his majesty, his beauty, his purity, his holiness, his greatness. We look at that like looking at the sun and we know we are not like this. And so we're overcome with the reality that we're only a creature. We feel our smallness and our frailty and our sinfulness. God's law is glorious. It's glorious because God is glorious and his law shows us who God is. It's like God is saying to his people, here's who I am. Here's what I'm like. And it's not just a list of things not to do. It's also a list of things to do. God's law creates a beautiful, contour-rich, vivid life filled with purpose and fullness. God's law is not in opposition to God's grace. God's law leads us to God's grace by showing us that we cannot measure up on our own, that we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves because we long to be near the glory, but we know we can't. See, it's not just that God doesn't lie. It's that God always tells the truth. It's not just that God doesn't steal. He generously gives us everything we need. It's not just that God doesn't commit adultery and is not unfaithful to us. It is that God is always faithful every time, every time we need him. Israel knows they're separated from God, and that's why in verse 21 they stand far off from him. They plead with God through Moses to stop talking. We can't hear any more words from this God. But not Moses. Moses, the mediator, that is the one who stands between the Redeemer and his redeemed people, what does he do? He doesn't stand far off. Moses presses into the presence of God. At the end of verse 21, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. He moves in. Moves into the presence where God invited him to come. But even Moses would fail God's people. Even Moses would get angry with God's people and wish them gone. They need a better mediator and so do you and I. Can't you feel what Ava felt? The trembling fear of a broken relationship? Can't you feel the isolating darkness and separation that sin introduces into our relationships with others? And into our relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you may not know yet the relational distance between him and you. You may not feel that yet, but you can imagine it because you know what it's like horizontally. God's law is delightfully good. Sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And it shows us the beautiful contours and color of what this life can be. But we need a better covenant. We can't keep this law. It's too glorious. And so we turn to the rest of this sermon, the second point, which is the Savior's gracious work brings us near. God's glorious law highlights our separation. The Savior's gracious work brings us near. The people of Israel broke this covenant shortly after it was struck. But God has a way for them to maintain the relationship that he has with them through the sacrifice of animals. That's strange. Why the sacrifice of animals? Why do animals need to die in order for the people to continue to have a relationship with God? 
Because the wages of sin is death. That's just the way it is. It's the result or consequence of sin. And we see this at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. What does God say to Adam when he places him in the garden? Eat all of it. All these trees filled with fruit. Eat it all except for this one tree in the garden. And on the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve eat from that tree. And then they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do? They move away from him. God's presence that they consistently enjoyed up until that point, that they relished, now provokes fear in their hearts. They know that they're rebels and sinners now. They know that they cannot stand in the presence of this glorious, pure, beautiful, faithful God. And so what does God do? In a great act of mercy that we learn in the Bible typifies this God, he kills an animal and he clothes them with the animal skins. The animal dies that day in the place of Adam and Eve, but God still removes Adam and Eve from his presence and guards the path back to him with angels and flaming swords. Which is more mercy? Because if they come into the presence of God without having their sin removed, they will die. It'll be the end of them. And so following this covenant on Mount Sinai that God delivers through Moses, God prepares for the fallenness of his people. Animals will die to cover over the sins of God's people so that they can maintain a semblance of a relationship with him. But this is not the relationship that God longs for. This is not the sweetness of fellowship that God experienced with Adam and Eve before the fall. Once a year, one priest trembles with animal blood into God's presence, hoping that he's done everything right. And this repetition and this constant bloodshed screams for us to see how costly our sin is. And this repetition and this bloodshed pleads for us to see that we need a better covenant with God. And then from Nazareth, comes a man born of a virgin and adopted by a carpenter. And this man says and does the strangest things. When he teaches in the synagogues, the people are astonished because he teaches as one who has authority. He confounds and frustrates the religious leaders of the day when he calls on them to repent and believe in him. And he does strange things. A man plagued with flesh-eating leprosy, approaches Jesus and begs him to touch him and heal him. He says this, If you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus, moved with pity, Mark says, stretches out his hand and touches him. Now, everyone who's watching this knows exactly what's just happened. Jesus has just opened himself up to getting leprosy himself, and he's just made himself ceremonially unclean. What a fool! But as Jesus touches the man, he says to him, Be clean. And immediately, leprosy left him, and the man was made clean. Jesus makes the unclean clean. And not just physical illnesses. 
On another occasion, Jesus is teaching in a home and it's crowded and these friends want to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. They cut a hole in the house. They lower the man down. Jesus looks at the man and what does he say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are standing there and they're thinking in their own minds. They're not saying out loud, who does this man think he is? Who but God can forgive sins? Mark tells us that Jesus, knowing exactly what they were thinking, said to them out loud, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, it's obvious to those who are listening that it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove whether or not that's taking place. But if I say get up and walk and you don't get up and walk, then I'm a fraud. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, get up and walk. And he does. Jesus reconciles the separated sinner. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. Now, 84 of you women are studying Hebrews chapter 10 in women's Bible study this week. And you're starting with Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. No, you're not going to stand far off. You have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us not stand far off. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you feel it? The trembling separation that Israel felt from God has been replaced. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to what? Draw near to the holy place, straight into God's presence with confident assurance by faith in Christ's blood. It's his torn flesh that makes it possible for us to come boldly into God's presence, no matter the baggage we're carrying with us. Our hearts are sprinkled clean, clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We who were dead in trespasses and sins are alive. We who have been blinded by the God of this age can see. We who were unclean have been made clean. And we who were trembling far off from God have been brought near because of his blood. Praise God for what he's done in Christ. Now, I told Ava that I knew Grandpa would forgive her. But how did I know? When I was 12 or 13, I was in my parents' garage, foolishly practicing my golf swing. <laughs> and I smacked a nine iron right into my dad's hood of his Buick right along the line between the hood and the front right fender. And I stood there frozen, wondering exactly what Ava was wondering. 
wondering how I could be so stupid to swing a golf club next to his car. And I instantly felt the fear of separation. I knew I deserved a consequence. And as I recall, dad heard the nine iron hit the car. (laughs) And he came into the garage. And all I can remember after that is confounding mercy. With shockingly few words, he covered my wrongdoing. And so I could say confidently to Ava, I've been to this guy for mercy. And I know he will forgive you. And so my girl bravely walked into the house and told her six foot three grandfather that she had scratched his car. And he promptly put her on a plane to Virginia. (laughs) He forgave her and he reminded her of the goodness of rules that are consistent with God's heart. Now you may have a dad who responded very differently, differently to your sins and mistakes. And my dad would want you to know that he was far from perfect as a dad and made plenty of mistakes. But I'm not here to point you to my earthly father. I'm here to point you to my heavenly father. We sometimes hear that Jesus is the merciful one, right? In the New Testament and, and God in the Old Testament is, is just and angry. This falls embarrassingly short of the truth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conspire perfectly together for the redemption of their own and for the judgment of those who reject them. And so, for example, in Exodus 34, verse 5, God reveals this about his name. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Christ, God becomes the just one who does not turn a blind eye to sin and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He's able to do both things in the shed blood of Christ for all who believe in Jesus. I've been to this God for mercy and he will show it to you. No matter what baggage you're bringing into this room this morning, he will show you mercy. Turn to him with joy and confidence And embrace the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, for your love, and for your power. And as we stand and sing, press these truths, Holy Spirit, deep into our hearts. Until our hearts rejoice with gladness. Amen.